You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 168, Forts Mercer and Mifflin. Last week, I went over the extensive Delaware River defenses that continued to keep the British Army in Philadelphia from being able to connect with the British Navy further downriver. Without control of the river, and with the Continentals cutting off access to food and supplies from the countryside, the British Army occupying Philadelphia faced the possible danger of being starved out. As such, opening the Delaware River became a top priority. All of this was happening at the end of September and early October, while General Burgoyne was still struggling to save his army near Saratoga. General Howe, in Philadelphia, would not give any consideration to that issue until he had opened up the Delaware River and forced Washington's Continentals to withdraw from their positions threatening Philadelphia. After the British took Fort Billingsport without much of a fight, as I discussed last week, the only real barrier between the Navy and Philadelphia was Forts Mercer in New Jersey and Mifflin on an island just off the Pennsylvania side. Between the two forts, the Americans had placed several rows of underwater chevaux de frise, which, as I explained last week, were really just large pointy sticks with metal tips attached to the bottom of the river by boxes of rocks. These prevented any ships from moving upriver without being punctured. The fort cannons on both sides of the river prevented the British from trying to remove these underwater blockages. After the continental attack at Germantown, General Howe spent the next couple of weeks shoring up his land defenses. He pulled his army out of Germantown and moved them behind entrenched lines closer to Philadelphia. Once that was complete, he could turn his focus back on opening the river. On October 21, 1777, General Howe deployed a division of Hessians under Colonel Carl von Dunop. His mission was to capture Fort Mercer. Colonel Dunop swore that he would take the fort or die trying. Now that was exactly the sort of bravado that had brought him this far. Colonel von Dunop came from a noble family in Hesse, which is what gave him a path to a commission as an officer. However, he rose through the ranks with an ambition that led him to take conspicuous acts of bravery on the battlefield. He had served with distinction in the Seven Years' War and had volunteered for service in America as soon as that became an option. Vendunum had a very traditional and almost exaggerated attitude toward the military command structure. He was always highly deferential and polite to his superiors and rather short with those beneath him. He had a reputation for having a very short temper. He also very liberally used floggings to enforce his orders with his soldiers. 
He even had a standing order in America to take no prisoners. Soldiers under his command who brought back live prisoners could expect to be flogged. Von Dunham had served with distinction during the New York campaign. However, his reputation took a hit at the Battle of Trenton. Von Dunham commanded an outpost near Trenton, which should have been able to support his fellow Hessians on Christmas 1776. Instead, the Americans had lured him farther away from Trenton, down to Mount Holly, in order to isolate the Trenton outpost. After the Continentals captured Trenton, Von Dunham had to retreat back toward New York City to save his command. On the Philadelphia campaign, Von Dunham sought to restore his reputation. His Jaeger Corps was conspicuously out in front, being as active as possible. General Howe noticed Von Dunham's efforts and tasked him with the capture of Fort Mercer. This was another opportunity for the colonel to prove himself. Von Dunham crossed into New Jersey with 2,000 Hessians, including three brigades of grenadiers and four companies of highly valued Jaegers. He also brought several pieces of field artillery to use against the fort. Opposing Von Dunham was the fort's commander, Continental Colonel Christopher Green of Rhode Island. Colonel Green was a very distant cousin of General Nathaniel Green. Colonel Green had entered the war as a major when he led Rhode Island volunteers to Cambridge in May 1775. He served on Benedict Arnold's Wilderness March to Quebec and led troops under Arnold at the attack on Quebec City on December 31st. Like most of the attackers in that battle, Green was taken prisoner and held in Quebec, finally exchanged in August 1776. In February 1777, he received promotion to colonel and took command of what became known as the 1st Rhode Island Regiment in the Continental Army. Colonel Green commanded about 400 Continental soldiers. This included both his regiment and the 2nd Rhode Island, which was under the command of Colonel Israel Angel, who also served as Green's second-in-command at the fort. Another maybe 200 New Jersey militia were also at Fort Mercer in October. The garrison had not been there very long. Washington had only deployed the Continentals to Fort Mercer less than two weeks before the battle. Two days after deploying the two regiments, Washington recalled Angel's Regiment, the 2nd Rhode Island, back to service in Pennsylvania. On top of that, Washington ordered Colonel Green to deploy any members of his garrison with experience aboard ships to join Commodore Hazelwood's fleet on the Delaware River. He also sent orders to send more of his men over to Fort Mifflin, where Washington's intelligence indicated the attack might occur. It was only a few days before the battle that Washington sent back Angel's regiment to supplement the severely depleted garrison at Fort Mercer. At that same time, Washington also sent a French officer, Thomas Antoine Chevalier de Mouillet du Plessis, who had recently arrived in America and received a commission as captain of artillery. Duplessis had engineering experience, and Washington hoped he could be of assistance in the last-minute improvements to fort defenses. Even with the last-minute reinforcements, the defenders of Fort Mercer would be horribly outnumbered by the Hessian attackers. When Duplessis arrived, he immediately recognized that the garrison was far too small to defend a fort that was nearly 350 yards long and 100 yards wide. 
he suggested that Colonel Green place the garrison in a small section at the southern end of the fort. Then they would build a wall between the two sections. Since the fort was made of earthen walls simply dug up and piled high, it was easy enough to create an interior wall. In the northern section that would be vacated, the garrison built abatis, which are basically pointy sticks placed in such a way to make it difficult for anyone to move quickly around the area. The garrison took the Whittles fruit orchard to make the abatis. The defenders mounted all their cannons on the southern portion of the fort, but kept a few soldiers on the wall of the northern side so that the attackers would not realize that the northern portion had been abandoned. On October 22nd, Hessian Colonel Von Dunup organized his troops into two columns totaling about 1,200 men. They broke camp before dawn at 3 a.m. to make the eight-mile march to Fort Mercer. But because the locals had destroyed a bridge that they needed to get to the fort, the columns had to make a detour and did not arrive until about 1 p.m. that afternoon. The Hessians made no attempt at surprise, but began to form lines just outside of rifle shot of the fort. They sent a messenger to demand the surrender of the fort, which was refused. After that, the Hessians launched their assault. As the Americans expected, the attackers came over the walls at the northern end of the fort. The first Hessians into the fort were surprised that there were no defenders, and they began making their way through the abatis toward the interior wall that was dividing it from the southern portion. Once the enemy had fully occupied the northern portion of the fort, the Americans opened up on them with both cannons and muskets, turning the fort into a slaughtering field. The Hessians struggled to maneuver around the abatis, but could not move easily. Many fell. The few who reached the southern wall found that they could not climb it without scaling ladders, which they did not have. Eventually, the survivors pulled back out of the fort. Colonel Von Dunup personally led the second column against the southern part of the fort. His approach also faced cannon and musket fire, as well as fire from American ships on the river. During this assault, Von Dunup fell, hit in the leg. The remainder of his attackers withdrew. The entire attack had only lasted about 40 minutes. The Hessians later reported a total of 371 casualties However, American reports indicate the number was closer to 500. Among these were more than 100 killed outright and more than 80 captured. Among the captured were 20 Hessians found hiding under the southern wall. These men did not want to risk retreating through the killing zone again when the army withdrew and preferred to be taken prisoner. Among the wounded, as I said, was Colonel Dunup, who had refused to be carried from the field. He was taken prisoner and left to recuperate in the Whittle house next door. Despite receiving care there, he died from his leg wound a few days later. With most of the officers killed, the surviving Hessians ended up fleeing into the woods and made their way back toward the ferry to Philadelphia. The New Jersey militia, under General Silas Newcomb, was in a position where they could have run down most of the fleeing Hessians and captured them. However, lacking direct orders from Washington to attack the enemy, Newcomb opted to remain in position and do nothing. 
criticism of his lack of action would lead to his resignation just over a month later. Despite the lack of follow-up, Fort Mercer proved a great American victory. The garrison reported only 14 killed and 23 wounded. To complement the Hessian land attack, the British had moved a fleet of five ships upriver to fire on the fort. Commodore Hazelwood sent his naval fleet against the British, combined with cannon fire from Fort Mifflin. The British ships were forced to retreat. One British vessel, the Merlin, ran aground and had to be burned and abandoned. A larger ship of the line, the Augusta, also ran aground, but was able to escape after taking severe damage. The following day, fires still burning aboard the Augusta caused the ship to explode, with the loss of crew and the abandonment of the ship. The failure to take Fort Mercer made General Howe's occupation of Philadelphia even more tenuous. The British were concerned that if they failed to open up the Delaware before winter set in and the river froze, they could be without sufficient provisions until spring. There was even some discussion of abandoning the city and marching back to New York. The loss also came around the same time as news arrived of General Burgoyne's surrender at Saratoga. On the same day as the Battle of Red Bank, October 22nd, General Howe wrote a letter to Lord Germain in London saying that he would need many thousands of reinforcements for the following year's campaign and that they did not appear to be forthcoming. Howe, therefore, sought permission to resign his command and return to London. Howe's resignation was not the result of failing to open up the river as easily as he might have thought. Rather, it was in response to a longer-term concern that London absolutely refused to give him the number of troops he thought needed to bring the war to a successful conclusion. Howe knew it would take many months to receive a response to his request, and even if it was accepted, he needed to take further action to secure Philadelphia for the winter. It was also about this time that Howe ordered General Henry Clinton in New York to send another 2,000 soldiers from New York to Philadelphia as reinforcements. These were the orders that forced General Clinton to abandon Forts Montgomery and Clinton on the lower Hudson Valley and return to his defensive posture in New York City. Since the attempt to capture Fort Mercer was a bust, Howe focused his attention on Fort Mifflin. As I said last week, Mifflin was a small fort on Mud Island, just off the coast of Pennsylvania on the Delaware River. It had a rather small garrison, which Washington had increased to about 400 just before the attack on Fort Mercer. Before Washington sent reinforcements in late September, the garrison consisted only of about 60 militiamen, many of whom were invalids, and none of whom were even trained to fire the artillery at the fort. On September 23rd, Washington gave command of the fort to Colonel Henry d'Arnt, an officer from the Prussian army who came to America as a volunteer and received a commission as colonel of the German regiment in March 1777. Colonel d'Arnt, who had been ill, did not arrive at the fort until October 21st, the day before the attack on Fort Mercer. While surveying the fort for the first time, with Lieutenant Colonel Samuel Smith and a French officer named Dufleray, the men entered a blockhouse that was mostly destroyed. When de Arendt asked what had happened, 
Smith told him that the blockhouse was a regular target for the British Navy and that they had blown it up the day before. Upon hearing that, Durant fled out of the blockhouse, diving through two windows, which the others took as an act of unnecessary and extreme cowardice. After that, Durant's illness returned, and Lieutenant Colonel Smith assumed practical command of the fort. On November 9th, General Howe tasked Lieutenant Colonel George Osborne with taking Fort Mifflin for the British. The following day, Osborne's men occupied Providence Island, just to the north of Mud Island, and there they installed several large cannons. They also brought up a floating battery of cannons down the river, bringing the total to several dozen really large 24- and 30-pound cannons designed to reduce the fort to rubble. The British unleashed a near-continuous bombardment on the fort, which lasted for five days. The Americans returned fire, but were vastly outgunned. Most of the garrison spent days and nights hunkered down right behind the fort walls. They quickly discovered that moving into the interior of the fort made them a target for the many shells that the British lobbed into the fort's center. On the second day of the bombardment, a British shot hit a brick chimney which collapsed onto Colonel Smith. His injuries required that he be evacuated to Fort Mercer, leaving Major Simeon Thayer in command. The Americans continued to resist the onslaught, taking more casualties each day. On November 15th, the British Navy brought up several more large ships and managed to get one of their smaller ones into the shallows between Mud Island and the Pennsylvania coast. From there, the British cannons could fire almost at point-blank range into the fort. Around the same time, the Americans lost their large cannon destroyed by enemy fire. They were also reduced to running through the courtyard of the fort to grab British cannonballs, which they needed to fire back at the enemy. Commodore Hazelwood attempted to use his Pennsylvania fleet to support Fort Mifflin. However, he was easily overwhelmed by the British Navy and forced to withdraw. The British attack force under Osborne planned to launch an assault that same day, November 15th, to capture the fort. However, General Howe declined to approve the attack. That night, on the 15th, the American commander, Thayer, also realized that the fort was lost. He moved his surviving garrison across the river in the dark to Fort Mercer. With a 40-man rearguard, Thayer then burned what was left of the fort, spiked the cannons, and moved his guard across to Fort Mercer as well. On the morning of the 16th, Osborne landed on Mud Island, only to find the fort abandoned. He found only one American deserter who had remained behind and gave him a report of the casualties and the retreat. The man said the garrison had suffered about 50 killed and 70 or 80 wounded, although other estimates put total casualty rates at closer to 250. The British Marines lowered the American flag, which the garrison had left flying, and took possession of the fort ruins. The British reported only 13 dead and 24 wounded. With the fall of Fort Mifflin, General Howe dispatched General Lord Cornwallis with two to 3,000 British regulars to capture Fort Mercer on the New Jersey side. Cornwallis landed his force south of the fort and marched north. Inside Mercer... Colonel Green also received reports of 2,000 British approaching from the north as well. 
Washington had considered reinforcing Fort Mercer. However, his generals advised abandoning the fort and maintaining the army north of Philadelphia. Since Fort Mifflin was already gone, the strategic value of Fort Mercer had also disappeared. At this time, Washington was consolidating his forces for another possible attack on Philadelphia itself. So, on November 20th, Colonel Greene opted to burn Fort Mercer, evacuate the garrison, and destroy whatever the army could not carry away. The garrison marched north along the New Jersey side to join up with other American forces. Cornwallis's army marched on the fort only to find it abandoned. The British occupied the fort, rebuilt the defenses, and installed their own garrison. Having taken both forts, the British set about removing the chevaux de frise that blocked the navy from moving upriver. Hazelwood realized that his small continental fleet would be no match for the British fleet soon headed his way. He burned his remaining ships and marched his crews north to link up with Washington's continentals. With the river cleared, Admiral Howe finally sailed up to join his brother in Philadelphia. Now, the Howes had achieved their goal of taking control of the Delaware River and restoring access between the Army and Navy. But that did not mean an end to the fighting there. After Howe deployed Cornwallis to New Jersey, Washington deployed General Nathaniel Greene with a force to contest or harass the enemy. Even though Cornwallis was able to take the fort, Washington did not want to let them feel comfortable roaming around the New Jersey countryside. Green was joined by the Marquis de Lafayette, who had most recently recovered from his wounds at Brandywine two months earlier. On the night of November 25th, Lafayette led an advanced force of around 350 soldiers against a force of about 400 Hessians camped at Gloucester, just north of Cornwallis's main army around Fort Mercer. The Marquis launched a surprise night raid against the Hessians, driving them back to the main British camp. The attack resulted in little more than a skirmish, with the Americans killing or wounding about 40 Hessians and capturing another 20. The Americans only lost one dead and had about five wounded. Lafayette's gallantry in the fight, combined with his performance at Brandywine, led Washington to recommend that he be put in command of an entire division. General Adam Stephen, who had been accused of drunkenness at the Battle of Germantown, lost his command and left the army. Lafayette would replace him as division commander. Meanwhile, General Cornwallis resolved not to leave smaller units garrisoned around southern New Jersey. Other than the garrison at Fort Mercer, Cornwallis returned his force to Philadelphia. Next week, as the war rages all around Philadelphia, the Continental Congress in York finally gets around to finishing the Articles of Confederation. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors enjoying life not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week, 
and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now, they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com ARP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hey, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. My continued thanks to Trey Nance and George Davis for their support of the podcast at the Alexander Hamilton Club level, as well as everyone else who provides support on Patreon or through one-time payments via PayPal. I also wanted to remind anyone who is enjoying the show that you can follow me on Twitter at AmRevPodcast or join the Revolution Podcast Facebook group. It's a great way to connect with me and others who enjoy the podcast. This week, the British completed their methodical capture of the Delaware River, taking forts Mercer and Mifflin. The Americans, however, forced a setback by holding out at Fort Mercer, thus delaying the overall progress of the campaign. Fort Mercer was built in Red Bank, New Jersey. The owners of the land where it was built, James and Ann Whittle, continued to live in the home right next to the fort. The Whittles were Quakers and tried to remain neutral during the war, although Ann's brother, John Cooper, was a member of the Continental Congress. Ann Whittle remained in the house during the attack on Fort Mercer, which was also known as the Battle of Red Bank. According to local stories, a cannonball flew into the room where Anne was working on her spinning wheel. She calmly picked up her spinning wheel and carried it to the basement to continue her work. After the battle, the Whittle House became a field hospital for the many wounded, particularly many Hessian soldiers who comprised the bulk of the battle casualties. The Whittles did what they could to help the wounded, including the commander, Colonel Von Dunup, who died in their care. Today, Red Bank is a national park. The fort itself is gone, except for a few mounds of dirt where you can vaguely make out the lines of the walls. The Whittle House, though, is still intact and has been turned into a historical monument and visitor center. Across the river, Fort Mifflin also still stands. The federal government maintained the fort on and off, mostly during wartime, until 1956. Today, it is owned by the city of Philadelphia and managed by a nonprofit historical group. You can visit the fort, although there is a fee. The fort regularly holds living history and other events on the site. So, if you live in the greater Philadelphia area or plan to visit, you might want to make Red Bank or Fort Mifflin one of your stops. Now, much of what we know about the Battle of Fort Mifflin comes from the memoirs of Joseph Plum Martin. He was one of the soldiers who garrisoned the fort during the British attack. His book gives a riveting and graphic description of the British efforts to reduce the fort. If you haven't read Martin's book, I still heartily recommend it as a great perspective on the war from an enlisted soldier. 
My book recommendation this week, though, is one that focuses very specifically on the British effort to capture or destroy the forts along the Delaware and open up the river for the British Navy to get to Philadelphia. This book is called Fight for the Delaware, 1777, by Samuel Stell Smith. The book begins with the British Army's capture of Philadelphia in July and goes through the final clearing of American defenses in November. Although the book is only about 50 pages long, it's in kind of a strange format where the pages are really huge. At least the version I have is printed that way. It's, uh, in terms of height and width, uh, the size of a coffee table book, although since it's only 50 pages, it's rather thin. If the amount of text that was in the book was printed on normal-sized pages, it would probably be more than 150 pages long. The book, though, is not very well footnoted or documented, so if you're looking at it for more research purposes than just general interest, you may want to look somewhere else. It was published in 1970, along with a barrage of other books that were produced in anticipation of reader interest during the Bicentennial. I haven't found much details on the author, Samuel Stell Smith, other than that he produced at least half a dozen other similar books in the 1960s and 70s, most of them on various battles of the Revolution, and all of which involve things in or near the state of New Jersey. The book on the fight for the Delaware is about 50 years out of print now, and appears to be crazy expensive even for a used copy on Amazon. But fortunately, my library had half a dozen copies on their shelves, so I could access it there. So if you want to read more on the topic and can find a copy, Fight for the Delaware, 1777, is an interesting read. My online recommendation this week is a free online ebook called Anne C. Whittle, The Heroine of Red Bank, by Isabella and Wallace McGeorge. Calling this a book is maybe being a little generous. It's a series of really short essays of about five pages each, totaling about 20 pages long, and it covers a lot of local histories surrounding Red Bank and the Revolutionary War era. It was published by the Gloucester County Historical Society in 1917. Personally, I find local histories like this interesting because they often capture facts or information that gets missed in other works. As always, you can search for the book on archive.org, or you can use the direct links to it on my website or blog at amrevpodcast.com. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, wherever you get podcasts.